Well, good morning, church. We are continuing our Windows series today where we are looking at some of the parables that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. And I shared with you a couple weeks ago that I'm a little bit obsessed with windows. I love sitting or standing by a window and looking at the view uh, that you can see through it. Maybe it's a view of the Rocky Mountains. Maybe it's a view of the Texas Hill Country. I'm excited about wildflower season uh, coming up here. Maybe it's a view of a lake. Uh, Whatever the view is, I love to take in the view. And that's just what we're trying to do in this series. We said that these parables are like little windows through which you can see into a different kind of life. And that different kind of life that you can see into through these parables is life in the kingdom of God. Life where God is king, where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we stand at the window each week, as we look through a parable, we're asking ourselves two questions. What does this window, this parable, teach us about life in God's kingdom? And what would it look like for us to experience it for ourselves? We started out two weeks ago with parables about clothes and wine. Last week, uh, Caleb talked to us about the parable of the soils. And this week, I am so excited because we have arrived at what I would call the goat of parables. You know what goat stands for? The greatest of all time. People love to talk about who or what the goat is in different areas. So like, let's play a little game. Goat in basketball, who would you say? Good, I heard a little LeBron, but I'm going with Michael Jordan. This one, I don't really even have to ask, but let's say the goat of ice cream, what is it? It's Bluebell, of course, good, good. Thank you, I've trained you well. When it comes to parables, for my money, the parable of the prodigal son is the goat. The greatest of all time. It's found in Luke chapter 15. It starts in verse 11. While you're turning there, I just want to say this is one of the most well-known stories of all time. Not just from scripture. I mean stories, period. And sometimes in church when we talk about a story that's familiar, there can be a temptation to kind of check out and say, this is a rerun. I've seen this one before. I'll just catch you at the invitation. But don't do that today. Don't do that today. There is so much richness in here. A couple of years ago, I was reading this particular parable, and I read it all my life, but God showed me something brand new to me in this parable that that really added a new layer. And I'll tell you about that in a few minutes, so listen to that. But I wonder if the Holy Spirit may have something new for you today, so don't check out. Now, most of the time when I preach, you guys know, if you've heard uh, heard me before, I'll usually start out with a story or illustration of some kind, because... Scripture is full of uh, all of these abstract teachings, and sometimes a story or illustration can help you understand it a little better. So I'll tell some silly story about my obsession with windows or grocery bags or something about measuring cups or something like that. But I'm not going to start with uh, a story this week, because Jesus has already given us one of the greatest stories of all time, and he doesn't need me messing it up with my story about measuring cups. So... What we're going to do is to walk through the story together. And usually we read the whole passage at the beginning and then talk about it. But I want to approach it differently today. We're going to read the story progressively throughout the message and talk about it as we go. And then toward the end, we'll summarize by answering those two questions. What does the parable teach us about God's kingdom and what would it look like for us to live in it? So as Luke 15 begins, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are frustrated with Jesus. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's kind of a theme in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke. This time they're frustrated with him because he's hanging out with the tax collectors and other sinners. And they feel like he should be avoiding these people, not going to parties with them. 
And in response, Jesus tells three parables, and it's three different parables, but they all follow the same form. Something gets lost, that something gets found, and then there's a celebration. If you're following along with us in the growth guide, on Thursday you read the first two of these parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And then on Friday you read this one, the parable of the lost son, or we, as we usually call him, the prodigal son. It begins in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, it is hard to overstate just what a slap in the face this was to the father in the story. The son's not just asking for dad to loan him a little bit of money. He's saying, Dad, your only value to me is in what you can give me. I don't care about you. I only care about your stuff. The younger son wants his father's gifts without his father. He wants the privileges without the relationship. He wants the blessings without the blesser. He thought he would be better off on his own without anyone to tell him what to do or anyone to hold him accountable. So he says, Dad, just give me what's coming to me and I'll be out of your hair. Now, it is tempting to judge the younger son here. With, with outside perspective, you can say, what was he thinking? We know this is going to end up in a, in a crash. But church, don't do it because this is our story too. All of us have taken the money and run at some point. All of us have turned our back on our father and gone off on our own thinking that our way is best. I think it's really interesting to look at the three parables in Luke 15 and to compare how the thing that's lost gets lost. Uh, the first one is a sheep. And it doesn't tell us exactly how it gets lost, but I like to give the sheep the benefit of the doubt. I think the sheep saw some green grass over here and he went a little farther over here, then he saw some green grass over there, went a little bit farther, and then before he knew it, he turned around and he was lost. The, the lost coin definitely didn't intend to get lost. Coins don't intend to do anything, do they? Uh, it was acted on by some kind of outside force. Maybe something got set on top of it and it couldn't be found. Maybe it uh, rolled off of a, a table because of the force of gravity and something covered it up. But the sun is different. The sun is different. The sun didn't just wander off on accident. He wasn't just acted on by some outside force outside of his own control. No, the son willfully rebelled against his father and left. And those three parables tell our story too. Sometimes we wander off on accident. We don't mean to get lost. We just get too far away and we find ourselves lost. Sometimes we get swept up by forces outside of us. Oh, but friends, every one of us is the younger son. Every one of us at some point has rebelled against our father. We've said, my way is best. I'm going my own way. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The New Testament calls us enemies of God. Isaiah 53 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. All of us are the younger son. All of us have wanted what we can get from God without having to be accountable to God. We've wanted the blessing without the blesser. And so we have turned our back on God and left. The son asks for his inheritance, and in a fascinating uh, twist, the father gives him what he asks for. I don't expect that. I expect the father to say, no, this is going to be harmful to you. But he gives him what he asks for, knowing it's going to bring pain 
to both of them. And then verse 13 says, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in a wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, you can see this coming a mile away, can't you, when he leaves? I mean, the son thinks everything is going to be perfect if he can just get away from his father, because that's his problem. That's his problem as the father. If he can just get far enough away, everything will be good. But in reality, when he separated himself from the source of the blessings, the blessings ran out. And if we think we can experience the blessings of our father without a relationship with our father, we're going to find ourselves disappointed as well. When the son realized he was in need, the first thing he did was try to solve the problem himself. And so uh, the text tells us that he went and hired himself out to a local farmer where his job was to feed the pigs. But despite the fact that he got this job, the money going out was more than the money coming in, and he still was hungry. He couldn't fix his own problem. And I see myself in this part of the story, and I see all of us in this part of the story, because all of us, our first instinct is to try to fix the problem ourselves when we find ourselves in need, isn't it? We got ourselves into this mess. We're going to see if we can get ourselves out. And so I was just thinking this week about what that looks like, and I thought if, if we feel a need for validation, we try to fix that ourselves by filling it with the opinions of others. If we feel a need for meaning or excitement, we try to fill that by traveling somewhere or buying something. If we feel a need for intimacy, we try to fix it ourselves and fill it with pornography or unhealthy relationships. We try to fix it ourselves, but ultimately we find out the same thing that the younger son found out is that it just doesn't work. We're simply not capable of meeting our deepest needs on our own. There is only one who can ultimately meet our deepest needs, and it is our father. That's the realization that the son came to in verse 17. And I love this line so much. The text says, when he came to his senses. What a beautiful line this is. The son woke up and realized that where he was wasn't where he wanted to be. And what a beautiful gift of grace this is, friends. When we realize, when God allows us to see that the selfish path we're on will never ultimately satisfy. That our selfish ambition will never ultimately fulfill us. What a blessing it is when, when the Holy Spirit helps us come to our senses and remember all of God's goodness. I've been using this verse as a prompt for prayer this week. I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would cause all of us to come to our senses and to see that God's way is always best. When the younger son comes to his senses, he starts to think about home, and the rest of verse 17 says, he came to his senses and said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. He realizes, look, even the hired servants at home have plenty to eat and I am starving here. So he comes up with a plan. He's going to go back home and talk with his father. And as he thinks about this, he begins to write a speech in his head. And I want to zoom in on this speech for a minute. The speech has three parts. Take a look. Verse 18 and 19 says, I will set out and go to my father and say to him, number one, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Number two, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Number three, make me like one of your hired servants. So three parts to the speech. First, he's going to acknowledge his sin. Second, he's going to acknowledge the impact, the damage that that sin has caused to their relationship. And third, he's going to propose a new type of relationship with his father. 
Because his original relationship as father-son is damaged, he's going to propose a new relationship, not as a son, but an employee. Now, the whole story has been tragic up to this point, but to me, this is the most tragic part, to think about the son returning home, being with his father, but to have that relationship irreparably broken and changed. To see the man that he once knew as his father only as his boss is a special kind of tragedy. But the son thinks he has no choice, so he gets up and he starts walking home. I'm sure he's terrified of what his dad's going to say when he sees him. Maybe even more terrified of what his bossy older brother's going to say when he sees him. But when he gets close, something amazing happens. Verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And you know what this means, don't you? You don't see someone a long way off unless you're actively looking for them. The father, the father was looking for him. He was waiting for him. He was praying that his boy would come home. And it's so interesting. What emotion do you think the father has when he sees him? You might think it's anger. I can't believe how that kid treated me. You might think it's vindication. I knew he'd come crawling back. But let's put the rest of the verse up. Look what it is. Well, he, he, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And friends, this is so beautiful, so unexpected. The father has every right to feel angry, doesn't he? Every right to be frustrated, but instead he feels compassion. Instead of focusing on how the son has done him wrong, he focuses on the fact that the son was home again. And friends, I just want to tell you, this is God's posture toward us. This is God's posture toward us. When he looks at you, it's not disappointment that he feels. When he looks at you, it's not anger he feels. It's not vindication like she's hurting, but it serves her right. He's suffering, but it serves him right. When the father looks at you, he feels compassion. Don't take my word for it, though. Never take my word for it. Always take the word of Scripture. Look at Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Matthew 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' brother James in James 5 says, The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. When you're hurting, friends, the Father has compassion for you. I hope that thought just wrecks you today. I hope it melts your heart. As I've thought about that over the last couple of weeks, it's just, it's melted my heart to think about the fact that when we wander, when we rebel against God, his posture toward us is compassion. He's waiting for us to return. He feels a sense of loss when we wander and he wants us to be restored. I hope that blesses your heart today. The father embraces the son and after they finally let go and they wipe the tears from their eyes, the son starts his speech. Remember the three parts, right? I've sinned, my sin has broken our relationship, I'm proposing a new relationship. So verse 21, he starts the speech. He says the first part, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he says the second part, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But then something unexpected happens. This is the thing that I noticed a few years ago that added a new layer uh, to the story for me. Before the son can say the third part about making him like one of the hired hands, the father interrupts him. 
The son's about to propose a new kind of relationship with his dad. He's about to ask his father to take him on as an employee. He's asking for a job. But not only does the father say no, he doesn't even let him ask. He doesn't even let him finish. Look what happens. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this, what? This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see what's happening here? The son asks for a job, but the father turns him down. The father doesn't want to hire him as an employee. He wants to welcome him home as a son. And friends, there is a world of difference between those two things. An employee gets paid because of what he's done. A son gets blessed because of who he is. An employee works to earn a paycheck. A son serves out of gratitude. An employee stays an employee as long as the situation is mutually beneficial, but a son stays a son forever. The boy thinks his only option is to come back as a hired hand. He thinks he's messed up so badly that being an employee is the only option he has left. But the father welcomes him back, not as an employee, but as a son. Friends, when God showed me this in this story a couple of years ago, I got to tell you, it touched me so deeply because for so much of my life, so much of my life, I have worked so hard in a desperate attempt to be good enough. In a desperate attempt to be good enough for other people to like me, for other people to respect me. In a desperate attempt to tell myself that I have value, that I'm good enough. In a desperate attempt to feel like I have value. And the, way that, the reason that I've done that, and probably the reason that you've done that, is that that's the way the world works, isn't it? The world is set up for employees, not sons. The world tells you your value is based on what you've done, not on who you are. And it's so easy to let this twist the way we view ourselves, to let it twist the way we view God and our relationship with him. And so we give the same speech that the younger son gave to God. We propose a new relationship with him. We say, God, I know I've messed up. I know I've damaged our relationship. I'm so sorry. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to try to work as hard as I can to make it up to you. Please make me like one of your servants. Hire me as an employee. And God says, I'm not hiring, but I'm adopting. I'm adopting. I won't take you on as an employee, but I will welcome you home as a daughter, as a son. I choose to bless you, not because of what you've done, but because of who you are. I wish I had time to dig into the rest of the story. I'm already late. I apologize. There's so much good stuff in here. We'll come back to it another day, I promise. But let me just summarize the last part of the story really quickly for you. The summary is the father throws a huge party to celebrate his son's return. The older brother is angry because he thinks he's the one who deserves a party, not his uh, loser younger brother who wasted all the inheritance. So what that means is the older brother had that same hired hand mentality too. He sees himself as an employee of his father who deserves a paycheck instead of a son of his father who's blessed by their relationship. He thinks his father owes him something because of what he's done. And look at the gentle way that the father pleads with him to come join the party. He says, my son, you recognize that? My son, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. 
Such a beautiful verse. The first thing he says is he calls him son. He reminds him, you're not an employee. You're my son. And then he reminds him that the biggest blessing isn't the possessions. It's not the young goat that he wants. The biggest blessing is their relationship. He says, you are always with me. You are always with me. That's the most important part. And then after reminding him of their relationship, he reminds him, and everything I have is yours. All the blessings are yours. And then suddenly, without warning, Jesus stops talking. The story ends abruptly. We don't find out if the older brother came inside and joined the party. We don't find out if the younger son learned his lesson and stayed at home. I don't know 100% if this is the case, but when I, when I think about it, I, th- I wonder if the reason that Jesus stopped the story right there is because each of us has the opportunity to finish the story for ourselves. Each of us is the younger brother. Each of us is the older brother. How will we respond to the father? Okay, so that's the story. Beautiful, tragic, relatable, and moving. What I want to do with the rest of the time as we summarize is to ask those two questions. What does this show us about God's kingdom? What does it look like for us to live in it? So first, what does this parable teach us about the kingdom of God? Well, the first thing it teaches us is if you come home, the Father won't reject you. If you find yourself in the far country, whenever you turn to God and come home, he will receive you. The younger son's messed up about as badly as anybody can possibly mess up, hasn't he? He's abandoned his family. He's squandered everything his father has given him. And what happens when he repents? When he turns from his sin and turns toward home, his father responds with compassion, with love. He's waiting on the porch, longing for his child to come home. And friends, that's how God is with you. That's how God is with me. He already knows every single thing that you've ever done. He already knows where you've been, and he loves you anyway. And when the Holy Spirit helps you come to your senses, when you repent, when you turn away from your sin and turn toward Jesus and head back home, he will run to meet you. Jesus says it this way in John 6. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. When you turn to God, friend, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, he will receive you. He will welcome you. If you come home, the Father won't reject you. But at the same time, if you stay home, the Father won't owe you. The older brother in the story stayed home, and he thought that because he stayed home, his father owed him something. He thought of himself as an employee working hard enough where the father would owe him a paycheck. And, of course, that was the younger son's plan, too, to renegotiate his relationship to work hard enough where his father would owe him a salary. But the father says the same thing to both boys. Did he notice that? He addresses them both as my son. They see themselves as employees trying to earn wages, but he sees them as sons that he loves. Friends, it's so easy for us to slip into that hired hand mentality, to think that, that, that we and everyone around us had better shape up. We better live just right so that God has to accept us. But the Bible, friends, says we can never put God in our debt. Romans 11 says, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? And the answer is no one, of course. The Father doesn't owe us anything. If you come home, the Father won't reject you. But if you stay home, the Father won't owe you. But here's the best news of all. 
because Jesus left home, the Father will forgive you. These three parables in Luke 15 are are, are really about who can be forgiven, who can be a part of the family of God, who can be restored. The Pharisees thought you were supposed to earn that forgiveness. You're supposed to earn that place uh, at the family table. And that's why they were mad Jesus was hanging with the, the tax collectors because they thought they hadn't done enough to earn their forgiveness. And Jesus tells them this story and really all three stories to explain that no one can earn forgiveness. No one can earn it, but make no mistake, friends, our forgiveness wasn't free. Our forgiveness came at a great cost. And that cost was paid by our Savior Jesus. The parable of the prodigal son focuses mainly on the father who's waiting at home on the porch for the child to return. But think back to the first parable in Luke 15, the story of the lost sheep. Jesus says when the, when the sheep wanders off, he talks about what the shepherd will do. He says, won't the shepherd leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Friends, this is the secret to the story. While the Father waited at home, our Savior, Jesus, the Good Shepherd, left home and came to find us. As he himself said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When we were in the far country, having rebelled willfully against our good and loving Father, having squandered all the good things he had given us. God could have written us off. He could have said, he can't come home. She can't come home. He could have left us on our own, but praise God, he didn't. He sent Jesus after us. Jesus left his home in heaven, came to earth, gave his life on the cross, died, was buried, and was resurrected so that we could be saved. And now because of that, we don't have to be hard hands. We don't have to be employees We don't have to try to earn our salvation. We can come home knowing that God will welcome us as sons and daughters. Jesus' friend John, who spent so much time with him over three years, as he reflected on this many years later uh, in his letter, 1 John, he wrote, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, say it with me, children of God. Friends, God loves you so much. No matter how far you've wandered, because of Jesus, he is ready to welcome you home, not as an employee, but as his child. So as we close, I want to look at that second question. What does it look like for us to experience this kind of life? To not just look through the window, but to go outside and to truly live in God's kingdom. Well, the first thing I want to say is you can't experience the Father's compassion in the far country. So come home. If you find yourself wandering today, if you find yourself in that distant country trying to meet needs your own way and failing and realizing that you're in desperate need, hear the voice of the Father calling you home. Come home today. But once you are home, the the main application point for all of us that I want us to really internalize today is this. Once you're home, live like a son, not a staff member. Live like a child of the king, not as one of his employees. Recognize that everything you need is found in God and stop trying to earn it. 
Get off that never-ending treadmill of trying to be good enough. The never-ending treadmill of trying to earn God's favor. It's not going to work. Instead, friends, let's receive the unmerited love and grace and favor of God that he has freely given us in Jesus. And let's let that love and grace radically reorient our lives. Let's let it make us brand new. You know, sons and daughters don't have to earn anything from their parents, but have you ever noticed that over time, sons and daughters begin to look like their parents or sound like their parents? You ever said something to one of your kids and said, man, that sounds just like my dad right now. It sounds just like my mom. May it be so of us, church. May it be so of us that as we receive the love and the grace and the favor of our good and loving Father, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, may we more and more closely reflect the beauty and the love and the mercy and the grace of our Father. When I was a kid, uh, my sister's favorite movie was the musical Annie. And have you seen Annie, the original, back from the 80s, some of you? Uh, we, we had it on VHS, and man, she watched that thing, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of times. So the whole thing is in my memory banks. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's about an orphan named Annie who gets invited to spend the Christmas holidays at the home of an unbelievably rich man named Oliver Warbucks. And just before Christmas, one of Mr. Warbucks' employees, a woman named Grace Farrell, uh, picks Annie up at the orphanage and she takes her to Mr. Warbucks' house, which is just this opulent mansion, just unbelievably lavish. And they walk into this entryway with like three stories high and all these windows and Grace Farrell says to Annie, Annie? What do you want to do first? And Annie looks around and, and she thinks and she says, I think I'll start with the windows and then I'll do the floors. That way if I drip while I'm doing the windows and, and Grace interrupts her and says, no, 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 Annie, you don't understand. You don't have to do any cleaning while you're here. And Annie says, I don't. How am I going to earn my keep? And Grace replies, you're our guest, Annie. And if you've seen the movie or the musical, you know the rest of the story. You know she doesn't stay a guest for long because soon Mr. Warbucks becomes Daddy Warbucks. He adopts her and she moves in permanently, not because of what she's done, but because of who she is by his choice to make her his daughter. Call me a sap if you want to, but I tear up every time. Every time I think about that story, this morning as I was going through the message this morning, I got tears in my eyes because, church, this is our story. This is our story, church. We were orphans. We had no hope, no resources, no future. And God adopted us. He made us his dearly loved sons and daughters. So in response, church, let's stop trying to earn our keep. Let's stop trying to put God in our debt. Let's freely receive the love and the grace and the mercy of our Heavenly Father. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful, powerful, amazing story that your son Jesus told that, that has such clarity and beauty and so profound means so much to us 2,000 years after it was 
told. Thank you so much, not just for the story, but for the greater truth behind the story. Thank you that when we were lost, all alone, Jesus left home and came to find us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. We praise you together. Help us to see ourselves as your dearly loved children this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.